Amen. Christ has risen from the dead. Such good news that uh, we get to celebrate all year round, but particularly around this time of year. Let's read our scripture for this morning. So uh, that is John 12, verses 9 to 19. You can find that in page 898 and 899 in the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, please stand with me for the reading of the word. So that's John 12, verses 9 to 19, page 898 and 899 in the Pew Bible. This is the word of the Lord. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that they are gaining nothing. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. You can have a seat. All right. Well, right now, currently in our country, two crucial events are taking place. One is the presidential primary election, where we're waiting to see which candidates are going to emerge uh, and be on the ballot for the presidential election later this year. And The other is of almost equal importance in the eyes of our culture, March Madness. (laughs) So if you're not familiar with this glorious event, it's a single elimination tournament where the top teams in college basketball compete to see who's the best team in the nation. Now, one of the things that these two events, the primary election and March Madness, have in common is they both tap into our desire for someone to get the victory, for someone to set things right, even if it's just for a season, even if it's just for a term. And so in sports, like college basketball, we cheer for our favorite teams, hoping that they'll have what it takes to come out on top. And in politics, like presidential primaries, We rally behind the candidate who we think will champion our cause and right the wrongs in our country. Now, some of the candidates' campaign slogans, they even expose this desire. So, for example, in 2004, one of President George W. Bush's slogans was, Reformer with results. In 2008, you remember that President Obama ran on a platform of hope and change. And now, we have candidates promising to reignite the promise for America, 
to be for America, to make America great again, and to bring about political revolution. The, the problem with these hopes and desires is that eventually our favorite team's going to lose. They're going to let us down. And our candidates, that, they may lose as well. Or they may win, and then when they do, maybe they fail to do what we thought they would. Or maybe they're too slow to championing the cause that got us behind them in the first place. Uh, or maybe they handle a, an issue differently than we would like. Well, in our text for this morning in John 12, 9 to 19, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, a king who has the power to truly set things right. He's one who will never disappoint, but some reject him, even plot to kill him. Others welcome and hail him as king, though they don't understand the true nature of his mission. Jesus would do something far greater than what they expected, and his victory would secure something for his people that doesn't just last for a season or for a term, but for all eternity. But before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, let's dive back into the text. So look with me again at verses 9 to 11 of John chapter 12. The text says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So at this point in John's gospel, Jesus is in Bethany. It's a village about two miles from Jerusalem. And he was there having a dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, three siblings and others. Now, this is a really big deal. And the previous chapter, chapter 11, tells us why. So at the beginning of chapter 11, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus, their brother, is sick and it seems serious. Um, but surprisingly, Jesus doesn't go immediately and heal him. Instead, he stays where he is and he allows Lazarus to die. And the text says that he does that precisely because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That might sound ridiculous to you. Like you might say, wait, if, if Jesus loved them, wouldn't he have gone and healed Lazarus? Like, wouldn't he have spared them from suffering? How does Jesus letting Lazarus die equate to love? Well, Jesus had something far greater in mind than immediate healing. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wanted them to witness his power over death and know that he's a resurrection in the life. Now, there's a point to be made there for those of us this morning who are suffering. So while it might seem counterintuitive to us, God can, and he often does, allow his people to go through trials. He's bringing us to a place of humble dependence on him through those trials because he loves us. He's making us like Jesus through those trials because he loves us. 
So we might not know all the reasons behind our suffering, but we can always, always rest assured that God's loving hand is at work for our everlasting good. And there's also a point to be made here uh, about the so-called prosperity gospel, which teaches that God wants to bless you with health and uh, material blessings. Tell that to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. God's primary purpose for your life is not to make you healthy and wealthy. It's to make you like Jesus. And that's really good news. That's so much better than the empty bill of goods the prosperity gospel will will try to sell you. So if you're trusting in Jesus, a truth you can take to the bank is that God is absolutely committed to your sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness, and nothing is going to stand in his way of accomplishing it. That's true blessing. Like That's true commitment. That's true love. But let's get back to chapter 11. So Jesus allows Lazarus to die. And by the time he gets to Bethany, where Lazarus was, Lazarus had been dead for four days. So when Jesus stands outside of Lazarus's tomb and asks for the stone to be moved uh, so that he could be near Lazarus's body, uh, Martha expresses concern that there's going to be an odor. He was really dead. Like this wasn't staged, this wasn't a hoax. This guy was dead for four days. And so Jesus, likely with the stench of death filling the air, stands outside the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And when the creator speaks, creation responds. So the word of life spoke. Creation obeyed. Lazarus got up with linen strips still on his hands and his feet with a cloth still wrapped around his head. God the Son brought Lazarus to life with powerful words. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it's that miraculous event that shows why this dinner is so significant here. In chapter 11, Lazarus was dead. But in chapter 12, he's sitting down reclining at table with Jesus. How crazy is that? And it's this, it's this event with Lazarus that draws the large, large crowd of Jews in verse 9. So these are likely the religious leaders who are opposed to Jesus. And so what probably happened is they heard that Jesus was in Bethany. And then they decided to come, not only so that they could see Jesus, but so that they could see Lazarus. And so they traveled to Bethany from Jerusalem. And when the chief priests who were part of the religious leadership, see that many of the Jews are going away and believing in in Jesus, they decide not only to put Jesus to death, they had already made that determination in chapter 11 after Jesus raised Lazarus, but they decide also that they're going to need to have Lazarus killed because Lazarus is a living testimony to Christ's validity. And so at this point, you have to wonder, how did it come to this? Like, why would the religious leaders want to end the life of one who's done such a miraculous sign? How did we get here? Well, I think there are at least three reasons. So first, in their minds, Jesus was a lawbreaker. Not only did he violate the Sabbath, 
but he also committed heresy by making himself equal with God. So we can see both of those things in one place in John. Uh, Flip back with me to chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. So we're not going to read this text. I just want you to have it in front of you. But in chapters 5, 1 to 18, or in chapter 5, 1 to 18, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath who had been an invalid for 38 years. He commands the man to take up his bed and walk. The man takes up his bed and walks. Uh, And the religious leaders, they take issue with this. Initially, they're upset because the man took up his bed on the Sabbath. Uh, And later, they're upset because Jesus healed him, and Jesus was the one who commanded him to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath. So in their minds, Sabbath law was broken. But here's the issue. The Old Testament, it did prevent working on the Sabbath, but it didn't necessarily prevent somebody from taking up his bed. That type of specificity was added to the law later in Jewish tradition. But Jesus doesn't doesn't defend himself this way. Jesus defends himself differently. He says when he's confronted over this in verse 17 of chapter 5, my father is working until now and I am working. So Jesus here is bringing up something the leaders uh, most likely would have agreed with. Namely, that while God himself rested on the Sabbath, he never stopped holding the universe together. And we're not going to say that God's a Sabbath breaker. And so where Jesus really angers the leaders here is uh, applying that truth about God to himself. So when he says, my father is working until now and I am working, Jesus is claiming equal rights. He's claiming that while God can hold the universe together on the Sabbath and not be a Sabbath breaker, Jesus, because he's God, can perform these signs on the Sabbath. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath. And so in one fell swoop, Jesus both undermines the uh, religious leader's extra rules about the Sabbath and he also makes himself equal with God. And for that, they want blood. They want him silenced. They want this lawbreaker put down. But second, we've come to this place in John 12 because the leaders feared that Rome would take away their place in their nation. So this is uh, ver- or chapter 11, verse 48. And so at this time, the Jews, they had a semi-autonomous state under Roman rule. And so the fear here is that if Jesus continues to perform these signs, if Jesus continues to make these claims, and if people are following him, the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to take away the leader's place. That probably refers to the temple in chapter 11, verse 48, and their nation. So what are they worried about? They're worried about losing their power. And then third, we've come to this place in John chapter 12 because many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's right from our text in chapter 12, verse 11. So D.A. Carson, he points out that, quote, the expressions assume a self-conscious conversion, a move away from the religion practiced by the authorities, and a move toward genuine trust in Jesus. And then further, Another commentator, Leon Morris, 
he notes that for the Sadducees, the Sadducees were also part of the religious leadership. So, quote, for the Sadducees, Lazarus was a double embarrassment. Not only did he cause people to go over to the side of Christ, but he was also a standing condemnation of their doctrine. The Sadducees didn't believe in the validity of resurrection. Right there sits Lazarus. A bunch of people saw this. Standing condemnation to their doctrine. So Jesus, he was a threat. He was leading people astray. He was taking away the leaders following their people. So this is why John says that the chief priest wanted to put Lazarus to death as well. Remember, they had already decided to kill Jesus in chapter 11 after he raised Lazarus, but now Lazarus must die too. This unbelief is striking, isn't it? The religious leadership cared so much about their man-made rules, their power, and their position that they missed what was right in front of them. The Messiah had come. He had performed numerous signs pointing to his identity, and he had just raised a guy from the grave who had been dead for four days. But they hardened their hearts and refused to believe. So if you're here this morning, and if you're not a Christian, what obstacles are standing in the way of you coming to Jesus? Are you afraid of losing your power, your status? Are you trusting in rule-keeping to save you? Whatever the stumbling block is, lay it aside today and come to Jesus. He's worth whatever it costs you to come. He's the resurrection and the life. He made this claim to Martha, Lazarus' sister, before he raised Lazarus, and he said, Quote, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha said, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. She saw with eyes of faith what the leaders missed. So the question for you today is, do you believe? Will you believe? Don't wait. Come to Jesus today. He is ready and willing to save you and give you eternal life. And if that's something that you would like to discuss, I'll be here after the service. I'm here through the week. I would love to talk to you. So don't hesitate to come and grab me. So the religious leaders persist in stubborn unbelief, but others have a more positive response to Jesus. Look with me here at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. So it says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the feast that John mentions here is Passover. Uh, This event served as a memorial to the day when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt by sending an angel to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, but passing over those whose homes had the blood of an unblemished lamb spread on their doorposts. Those who were covered by the blood of the spotless lamb were saved. The Israelites were commanded to observe that feast as a statute forever, and so many people traveled to Jerusalem to attend this important event. Uh, It could have been uh, anywhere upwards of 100,000 or more. Uh, some, um, Some say possibly quite a bit more. Um, But it's important to note here 
that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anybody knew where Jesus was, they were to tell them so that they could find Jesus and arrest him. And so that being the case, one has to wonder right here, is Jesus going to show? This is a really public event. Lots of people could see him. What's he going to do? Is he going to hide? Is he going to come in and usher in his kingdom? Uh, Well, he came and he arrived to celebratory fanfare. So the crowd that comes out to meet him, it's different from the crowd that we read about in verse 9. So there in verse 9, the crowd referred to those who had come from Jerusalem to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus, likely uh, composed of the religious leaders. Here, the crowd that comes out from Jerusalem to see Jesus, it includes those who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. So that likely includes many from Galilee where Jesus had ministered. And the crowd comes to meet him with palm branches in hand. That might seem a little weird to us, um, but it was normal then. Palm branches were a national symbol associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, and they were a sign for a victorious person. And the crowd also comes quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So Psalm 118 is a song of praise to God for a work of deliverance. Uh, and it was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles and at Passover. And verse 25 in Psalm 118 is a plea for God to save. And so the term that's translated in our Bibles, save us, we pray, is actually Hosanna. Uh, when translated from Hebrew to, when transliterated from Hebrew to Greek. So that's where we get our term Hosanna. That's what this means. Save us, we pray. And so verse 26, it's a blessing uh, directed toward the worshiper approaching Jerusalem. And it seems to have been understood as having messianic implications. And so given the psalm's significance, it's key to notice how the crowds apply it to Jesus. So they praise Jesus by shouting Hosanna as he's entering Jerusalem. They bless Jesus as one who comes in the name of the Lord. And not only that, they add a title that doesn't come from Psalm 118, even the King of Israel. So the crowds are welcoming Jesus not only as the Messiah, they're welcoming him as the king. And this is the same Messiah, the same king of Israel that one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, praises in John 1. There, Nathaniel is skeptical about Jesus. But when Jesus reveals that he had seen Nathaniel before they had actually ever met, Nathaniel says in verse 49 of chapter 1, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So now here in John chapter 12, the crowd is joining in on Nathaniel's refrain. The king of Israel is here. But to be clear, there was likely misunderstanding on the part of the crowd regarding Jesus' role as king. Uh, just, as there were, just as there was among the disciples about what's occurring here, as John says in verse 16. So you see, at this time, uh, the nation of Israel, remember, was under subjection to Rome. Uh, and a popular belief was that the Messiah would come and liberate them from their oppressors, take Rome down. Uh, in fact, D.A. Carson again, he notes that uh, the palm branches the crowd was waving, he says, quote, 
may well have signified nationalist hope that a messianic liberator was arriving on the scene. Remember, they were associated with victory. Uh, So this crowd could have uh, seen Jesus coming into the city after having recently raised somebody from the dead and welcomed him as the king who was coming to free them from the Romans. Now, that said, while the crowd may have misunderstood Jesus' purpose, there is not necessarily a reason to doubt the genuineness of their proclamation. And so you may, have heard, you may have heard it said that this crowd recognizes Jesus as king on Palm Sunday and then turns around on Good Friday and shouts, crucify him. I actually am not convinced at all that that's true. So without a doubt, some of this crowd could have been there uh, at, at, at both events, praising Jesus on Palm Sunday and shouting, crucifying him, shouting, crucify him on Friday. But remember that the religious leaders had Jesus arrested and tried under cover of darkness precisely because they feared the crowds. So it doesn't make sense to me that the same group that's praising him here, the same group that's praising Jesus one minute, would wake up on Good Friday and join in with a refrain shouting to crucify Jesus. I don't think it's the same crowd. I think it's different crowds. Uh, So, While this crowd may have misunderstood Jesus' purpose, there's not necessarily a reason to doubt doubt the genuineness of their proclamation. So they seem to be genuinely following Jesus, albeit with incorrect uh, expectations. Doesn't that describe us sometimes? So a few examples. We may rightly despise the prosperity gospel, but we may nevertheless subconsciously believe that God owes us something. So when suffering comes, we might not be so blunt as to say, you promised me health. But we might say, God, why me? We may rightly read our Bibles in the morning, but we may incorrectly believe that because of that, God's obligated to somehow make our day go smoothly. We may rightly pray regularly to God, but we may incorrectly believe that that means God should give us everything we want. We may rightly know that God wants us to be in community with other believers, but we may incorrectly believe that He's required to make relationships easy for us. So we need to be sure not to expect things from God that He doesn't promise us. And how do we do that? Well, by knowing our Bibles well, by living in close community with other believers, by being committed to trusting God even when we don't understand what He's doing in our lives. So God doesn't uh, promise us ease and comfort here, but He does guarantee us that He's working everything together for our good for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so this crowd, they may have been expecting the Messiah to come and liberate the Jews from Rome, but Jesus was working no such deliverance. As he'll later say to Pilate, as he's being tried, his kingdom is not of this world. He has no intention of saving them from Rome. His purpose is much greater than that. And he alludes to that 
as he rides humbly into Jerusalem on a donkey. Look with me at verses 14 to 16. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did, un- did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So as the crowd is praising Jesus as the messianic king of Israel, Jesus finds a young donkey and he sits on it, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. That's where this quote comes from. Fear not, daughter of Zion, which is another way of referring to the people of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So to get a better understanding of why this is important, I think we need to go back to Zechariah 9 for a moment. So uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. If you're using your pew Bible, you can find it on page 797. So it's Zechariah 9, page 797 in the pew Bible. So starting there in verse 9, the text says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from a frame and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare to you that I will restore to you double. And so in verse 9 there, the promise for Jerusalem is that the king would come humbly mounted on a donkey, uh, which donkeys were often used by people with peaceable purposes. And so it's not surprising that this king who's coming in on a donkey, which was often associated with peaceable purposes, not to create hostility, but to end it. He'll speak peace to the nations. He'll rule from sea to sea. He'll set the captives free. And so do you see why Zechariah 9 is important here in John 12? Remember what the crowd was expecting, a messianic liberator who would free them from Roman rule. By riding into into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus challenges, even corrects the crowd's false expectations. Again, to quote D.A. Carson, he says that Jesus, quote, does not enter Jerusalem on a war horse, which would have whipped the political aspirations of the vast crowds into insurrectionist frenzy. But he chooses to present himself as the king who comes in peace, gentle, and riding on a donkey. Now, Jesus, uh, his disciples didn't even understand what was happening here. So John in verse 16, he says that these things didn't become clear to them until after Jesus was glorified. So that's referring to his resurrection. So if Jesus didn't come to free his people from oppression to Rome, what's he doing here? Why did he come? Why is he riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey right into the hands of the people who are looking for him to kill him? 
Well, to answer that question, uh, let's look just a few verses ahead in John's gospel. So we're in chapter 12. Look with me in verse uh, 23. So starting there in verse 23 of John 12, the text says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So why did Jesus come into Jerusalem? He didn't come to rescue his people from bondage to Rome. If he wanted to do that, he would have rode in on a war horse and started an insurrection. He didn't come to save his life. If he wanted to do that, he wouldn't have rode into Jerusalem. No, Jesus came into Jerusalem to die. Like a grain of wheat that falls to the earth, dies and bears fruit, Jesus came to die for sinners so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And die Jesus would. In less than a week's time, he would be betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested, crucified. That's what we remember on Good Friday. That may look like weakness. That might look like Jesus' enemies and Satan win. But remember what we celebrate on Sunday. Jesus did not stay in the tomb. He's the resurrection and the life. Three days after his death, he got up. He rose from the grave in victory, having conquered sin and death. So the promise for everyone is that if you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus, the resurrection and the life, he'll save you. He'll give you eternal life. And so if you're here, and if you're not a Christian, again, I appeal to you. Don't love your life and end up losing it in the end. Instead, die to yourself. Turn away from your sins and run in faith to Jesus. He's not only ready and willing to save you, he's able to save you. He can get the job done. All that he requires is that you come. And for those of us who are here and are trusting in Jesus, a few points. One, daily die to yourself and trust Jesus. We never move beyond our need for the gospel as Christians. We never get beyond it. We never move beyond our need to repent and believe the good news. This is a daily discipline that we have to be committed to. When we see our sin, we run from it and we run to Jesus. Tomorrow, when we see our sin, we turn from it and we run to Jesus. The next day, when we see our sin, we turn from it and we run to Jesus. We cling to him in faith, cling to him in faith, cling to him in faith that has got to describe every day of our existence until Jesus comes back. And if it doesn't, we're going to go off the rails one way or the other. We're either going to trust in rule-keeping to save us or we're 
uh, going to bind a license, do whatever we want. We're not going to follow Jesus. We need to stay right on the narrow road, trusting and believing in a Jesus. He has the power to save. Let's trust him. And then with joyful hearts, let's obey him, daily dying to ourselves. So two, put on the humility of Jesus. Humbly, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey toward his death, a death for you and me. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, this might seem familiar to uh, those of you who are memorizing the fighter verses, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's seek to model that humility. Let's not just look out for ourselves and our own interests. Let's look out, be committed to the good of others around us. We need the humility of Christ. So let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit to give that to us in greater measure. Let's look at Jesus' death. Let's look at Jesus' resurrection. Let's meditate on what he's done for us and put on that humility by faith. And then three, well, as the text says here in verse 15, fear not. The Messiah has come. If you're trusting in him, he has accomplished eternal salvation for you. It's done. It's finished. You no longer have to fear. So whether it's your health, whether it's your savings account, whether it's your job, whether it's your kids, whether it's a past sin you've committed and repented of, whether it's the current political landscape in our country, whether it's persecution, whatever, we don't have to fear. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has saved us and brought us into right relationship with God. He's making all things new. There's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear here. Our king is on the throne. So fear not. God loves you. God is working together for your good. The Messiah has come. So let's look down verses 17 to 19 and let's see how the crowds and the Pharisees respond to his arrival. So in verse 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So John tells us that the crowd that had witnessed Jesus' resurrection, or that had witnessed Lazarus' resurrection, continued to bear witness. And he says that this crowd came out to meet Jesus because they had heard about this sign. So the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they kept talking about it. And as word spread, more people were drawn in. I wonder if that describes us as a church family. 
we've truly experienced something miraculous, haven't we? By grace through faith, we've been brought into a right relationship with God. Jesus on the cross paid for our sins, rose from the dead in victory. And if we're trusting him, we've been saved. Forever made righteous. That's a miracle. We've witnessed the miraculous. Are we telling others about it? Are we sharing Jesus? Are we like Peter and John, who when they were warned by the religious leaders to stop proclaiming the gospel, in Acts 4.20 they said, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Let's pray for and pursue that kind of boldness. Let's be diligent to bear witness about the good news of the gospel. Let's say, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Let's let that describe us. But the Pharisees, they see all of this. They see all of this happening. They see the crowds praising Jesus. They see people talking about what Jesus did with Lazarus, and they despair. They say, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world's gone after him. Why do they react that way? I think it's likely due to the fact that their plan to arrest and kill Jesus is now going to be harder to pull off. If all of these people are going after Jesus, it's going to be harder to arrest him, have him tried and killed. Now, they do accomplish that by the end of the week. Uh, They do that under under cover of darkness because they feared the crowds. Um, But notice the hyperbole in their statement. The world has gone after him. They're freaking out. What's ironic about that statement uh, is that, uh, in a sense, the world was going after Jesus. While certainly the crowds in this passage are not representative of every single person on the planet at that time, they do represent a large number of people praising Jesus. And significantly, John tells us in the very next passage starting at verse 29 of chapter 12, that some Greeks, non-Jewish people, come wanting to see Jesus. The nations are coming in. The promise of salvation is for everyone. It's for the world. Remember John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world might be saved through him. The leaders, the Pharisees here, they're overreacting. But it's ironic because in a sense, they're right. Jesus is drawing the world to himself. So will you trust him? Will you have him as your king? He came the first time in peace, but he's coming back with a sword. He will punish those who rejected him, sending them away from his presence in hell for all eternity. But for those who welcomed him, who believed in his name, he will embrace and welcome into his kingdom forever. And get this, 
You know how the crowd waved the palm branches at Jesus as he rode into the city? That's not the last time those show up in the Bible. One day, John describes in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and get this, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a day that's going to be. We will praise our victorious King, palm branches in hand. With that in mind, let's pray, and then let's sing our closing song, Sing to the King. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he did not love his life even to the point of death, but he went to the cross and he suffered death in our place. We praise you that he did what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross, the spotless lamb, and took on our sin, and he paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. God, we praise you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you, our King, for doing this wonderful work for us. Um, God, we praise you for raising Jesus from the dead, for showing that you approved of his sacrifice conquering sin and death, giving us hope uh, for saving us. So thank you for Christ. Lord, I pray that you would enable us uh, to walk in his ways. Help us to be believing the gospel, to be trusting him, to be pursuing him. Work in us powerfully by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.